We are in Romans 11. Paul has been moving through here, really 9 through 11, talking about now Israel particularly and God's promises to them. Again, the whole thing, discussion, I think, in the context of has the word of God been made void or broken? Has it failed what he has said to his people Israel? And Paul is showing, no, it has not. God is still the same. He's still working. It's in a way they hadn't expected, but it's in a way that he had always said he would be working. So Paul in verse one says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Okay. Has he then finished up with them? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So Paul has established here that God has not cast off Israel, even in some of the greatest days of wickedness through the Old Testament that he's kept the redmen when they would have destroyed themselves, when they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. God has been faithful to them. And the question is kind of, Paul says, well, I say then, has God cast away his people? Is it the same now? Okay, something new is happening. God is working in this way that they hadn't expected through the Messiah, through faith in Jesus Christ. Is, is it still the same? And Paul is saying, yes, it is still the same. There's, there's always going to be that promised remnant, even in Israel. And he references first himself saying, you know, I am a Jew. I, I am an Israelite. I was saved, but that was still part of his heritage. And he's also then going to go and bring their minds back to, again, the scriptures all the time. Isaiah, or excuse me, Elijah, where he says, don't you know that Elijah was at a point and Elijah being one of the prophets they, they respected most. You know he was at a point in his life where he's looking at God, he's complaining and saying, God, I'm like the only guy left. We know he had that amazing moment on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, wins this huge victory. He probably felt like, man, this is gonna be a major turn in the nation. It doesn't turn out to be exactly what he thought. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. He runs away. He gets miraculously helped through angels. He ends up in his place where he's kind of looking around and feeling alone, like I'm the only guy. And I do think probably for many of the Jews of this day, like Paul, they're probably looking around, most of them feeling like, man, there is not very many of us or in many families, as probably even a lot of places in the world now, people are coming to know the Lord and they might feel like, I'm the only one. Uh, I think even in our culture, you could feel like I'm the only person at work, I'm the only person in my family, I'm the only person in my class. And it's easy just 
on the horizontal sometimes to look around and feel like, man, this is kind of lonely. Is, is God really doing what he says he's doing? And Paul says, what, what was God's response to Elijah? What did he say? He said, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, that despite the, the unseen resources that they didn't know about, despite all the wickedness, God was still being faithful. And that really, this is kind of how Israel was going to look in the gospel age. They, there was not going to be very often this huge majority there was going to be a minority, a remnant again, saved, like, like Paul. I'm, I'm one, I'm a Jew, but I'm saved. I'm in God's purposes and plans. Acts 15, again, the apostles recognized this. They said, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they, which was the Gentiles. This is how we're saved now. But you, you would look around and you wouldn't, think that, man, it's a whole bunch of us, where before you were part of this national thing. All the, you, you went to the temple and there was Jews everywhere. And now they're hiding in caves. They're fleeing to different places around the world. They're getting pushed out of Jerusalem into Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. It's God's plan wasn't what they expected. And I think in a very real way, this was, this was a sentiment probably Paul had felt himself. And that many Jews at that time who believed in Jesus Christ would feel the same. I think it's certainly applicable to us as well. There can be times where we feel like, man, Lord, am I the only one? We're ne we never are. He's always got more than we know about. But Paul says, particularly to them in their scenario, in verse 5, Even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God is always going to keep a group alive, faithful to him, in his grace. Again, Paul always has to push this because particularly that Jewish mindset, it was always about works. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. They're they're. They're not this faithful group because they worked harder than everybody else or because they were more special spiritually than everybody else. It's because of God's grace and his election and their faith in him. He says that otherwise, if it's of works, then otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You either earned it or you didn't. It's either because of their works or not because of their works. Again, Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Either I can make myself good with God or not. Either I have to rely on my own works or I can rely on something else, which is God's work. And Paul always has to bring that back. This remnant doesn't exist just because of their works. What then, verse 7, he's building on this. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What it saw was right standing with God. But as a nation, they haven't obtained that. But the elect have obtained it, 
and the rest were blinded, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them, that their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. The, the picture Paul says is, okay, so what's the outcome of all this? Israel as a nation and as a people group, are they hopelessly hard now because they've been blinded and they've been hardened? What, what happens with this group that rejects God's way? This tiny remnant is believing, but this wider group then is becoming harder against Christ and his followers in the truth. And he quotes from Isaiah 29 and from Psalm 69, verse 22, to say, again, God always said this was going to happen. You can start to look around and feel like, man, this can't be God's plan. Look, look at all these Jews hardening themselves to this message to Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, no, this, this is what God knew would happen. Jesus himself, again, in Matthew 13, talks about speaking in parables. And then because, quoting similar sections of scripture, these people, their hearts are hard. They, they say one thing with their lips, but really they're far from him. There was, there was this constant pushing against the truth that was willful, and a stupor then came on them. There, there's only so much a person can do in terms of rejecting truth or turning away from it and not become really hard to it. Again, what, what happens when we're presented with truth is one of two things happens. I either cave to that and I let it form me, or I have to harden myself against it so that it doesn't form me. Conviction comes in my life. We've all done that. We recognize I have a choice now. I can surrender to this conviction and change, or think of a good reason why I shouldn't have to surrender this conviction right now. And we're really good at doing that. And what happens particularly with these Jews rejecting Jesus Christ. This is the son of God standing there in front of them, speaking to them. So many of them had experienced some pretty remarkable things. They've just become harder and harder and harder. And I think it was very difficult to see. And again, Paul knew this. He was one. He was one of the hardest. Jesus Christ himself had to knock him down off his high horse and break him, the, the spirit of that was still very real. You know, there's historians who, following both the revival in Philadelphia and also the Great Awakening when George Whitfield was in this area, one of the things that's interesting is they take note that many of the people who lived through those times of great revival, where the spirit was moving in some pretty remarkable ways, and didn't turn to Christ most of those people died still unsaved. That, that they never came to another moment like those moments they had rejected and hardened themselves to. And, and trafficking in truth, like, like it's not something meaningful, is a very dangerous thing, which is important for us. We, we hear truth very often. And to receive truth, 
because it's God's truth, causes me to say, okay, now I have to surrender to that. Or my only other choice is I, I have to harden myself to not surrender. Not surrender my thoughts, my attitudes, my desires. And these Jews had hardened themselves in a pretty remarkable way in the time of Christ. Interestingly enough, I was reading through uh, Trapp and his commentary on Romans. He mentions two historians that spoke of religious Jews right after the destruction of Jerusalem. And one of them admitted that they would whisper over a dying friend, believe in Jesus of Nazareth, whom our rulers crucified, for he shall come again to judge thee at the last day. That it was something that, that was common in their day. Another admitted that there was a secret practice among the rabbis that when they would martyr Christians, they would save some of their blood and then later anoint their dying friends and say this, if he that was promised in the law and the prophets has already appeared, and that Jesus who was crucified were the true Messiah, let this blood of an innocent man who died in the faith of Jesus cleanse thee from sins and be a means to further thy eternal happiness. There, there, there was a hardening there, and there was questions in the back of their minds that maybe this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, was really who he said he was. Sadly, the blood of a Christian isn't going to save you if you're anointed with it. Only the blood of Christ can do that. But there was a, there was a true pressing against the truth of Christ. There wasn't, there wasn't this uh, uh, lack of knowledge that caused people not to turn to Jesus, particularly these Jewish people. And what Paul is saying is, when you see this, you're seeing what the word of God said would happen. Jesus himself said it would happen. Paul wants these people to know this is not something somehow out of God's plan. This is truly still a part of it. But verse 11, he, he's continually to build on the conversation. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Or the idea is fall once and for all. Okay, they've stumbled. They made this mistake. Are, are they totally done with? And his answer is another emphatic answer. He says, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I might provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul says, okay, so then they've rejected Christ. They've been hardened. Is he totally done then with Israel nationally? And he says, certainly not. Of course he's not done with them. Paul knows, I think, that there was a sentiment among some of the Gentiles to uh, think that. So he wants to correct it. And even their national failure was predicted through the scriptures. Again, the gospel is going to go out to the whole world. That was always his plan. Notice he says that through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles and their fall is the riches of the world. 
Jesus, when he was having a conversation with the woman at the well, she brought up, well, you say we should uh, worship in Jerusalem. I say we should, we, my people say we should worship here in Mount Gerizim. Where, where's the place where we should worship? Worship. And Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Hey, it's not about the place anymore. This, this message, this life, this promise of blessing that started all the way back with Abraham, it's going to the whole world. It's not just in your spot or our spot. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, that's the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord God commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. It also says after that, that the Jews then got really angry and persecuted them and chased them out. And what Paul is saying here is, this is, this is, again, this wasn't just theology for him. He lived this. He was living, realizing, my people are rejecting this. There's a segment that are believing, but the majority are rejecting. God said they would harden themselves so that that gospel would then go to the whole world, beyond them. They were supposed to be a blessing to the world, to take it to the world. They failed, but God doesn't say, well, then nobody gets it. He says he's doing this thing you didn't expect, where he's given the gospel of the whole world anyway, through Jesus Christ. And the message was going out to the Gentiles. It went to them first. But now, he says, even through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles and is riches for the whole world. And their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, riches not the modern prosperity gospel, spiritual, eternal riches, riches in Christ Jesus. Didn't mean everybody made a lot of money in that day. These are different types of riches. And Paul says, look, I'm, I'm blessed to be a minister to the Gentiles. He loved that and he magnified that. But twice he says he would love to provoke them to jealousy. He, he wanted the Jews, his people to see the reality of the life that they wanted, the spiritual life that they wanted with God in the Gentiles, which they were seeing. And really, it still happens today. Paul would say, 13 again, I speak to you Gentiles, and as much I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He's blessed that he could do that. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. His, his point being, they're going to see the work of God in you and want to be drawn to that. Even today, a lot of Jews who come to know Jesus Christ, part of their story, not all, but many I've heard, talk about some Christian somewhere who had joy in God or some Christian that knew the Bible better than they did. How does this person know my scriptures better than I know my scriptures? And there, there's a moment of jealousy there. A jealousy, this is positive. This covenant I'm supposed to be faithful to. What, what is going on here? And searching that leads them to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know what? If we can make this happen 
and this is part of the outcome. That's wonderful. I want to see some of them saved. He knew an elect remnant would always be saved. And that's how many of the Jews were coming to the faith then, and it's still happening in the world we live in. But he says, if the setting aside of the Jews was a means for God to bring in blessing all to the world through the Gentiles, the riches that he has to give to the Gentiles, what will happen when he brings them back to their fullness? If the whole world was blessed, even though he set them aside, what will happen when he puts them back in their proper place and fullness comes to everyone, right? That's his question in 12, and then again repeated in 15. For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's not, it's not about their nationality anymore. It's this message of Jesus Christ, the riches of Christ through the gospel. That's, that's the central thing right now. Not, not whether they're Jews, which is important because there's still a lot of Hebrew roots movement stuff out there, all types of things, whether it's white or black, where, you know, if you connect your Hebrew roots, you're more spiritual. And people get pulled into these things, like somehow you're more spiritual or more righteous if you're connecting to some of these old kind of Hebrew traditions type stuff. Most of it is super weird. It's the exact opposite of Paul's message right here. No, no, no. What, what he's saying is they have been set aside nationally. This message, though, of Christ is going out to the world. Some will believe and turn to him. But when he brings them back to their fullness, when he puts everything back together, what's the blessing going to be? When the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of God's plan for them meet, it's going to be way more than it is even now. Paul even says it's going to be, what could it be, but life from the dead. Resurrection. Again, spoken of in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, both spoke and promised a resurrected David would be back ruling over his people. Literally names David. He is going to be a prince over his people. He's got the same name. He's the same dude. Guess what? He's going to be back around one day. It's not King Arthur. It's the real David. Promise. Daniel chapter 12 talks about those last days and those rising up from the dust. Some everlasting life, glory, shining like the stars. The promise of Jesus to his own apostles in Matthew 19, 28 was that in the regeneration, they would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Of course, we see in Revelation 20, 4 through 6, the Old Testament saints and martyrs raised resurrection. The word resurrection there actually means resurrection. This is, this is the central thing. It could be a little weird thinking about resurrected people on the face of the earth, but it is the central thing we believe Jesus Christ was resurrected and walked around on the face of the earth. A resurrected human being with other non-resurrected human beings. And he says, when he brings in their fullness, you know what you're going to see? Resurrection. Life from the dead. Something pretty incredible, which we'll get to. 4, 16. He's going to continue to build on this. If the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy also. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The, this work that God's begun, 
it's, it starts in a, one way, and what you take from it is also holy. This was a reference to that feast of first fruits and the rituals there, Numbers 15, 17 through 21, Leviticus 23, verses 10 and 11. You would take a piece of that lump, you would offer it to the Lord, and a part of that, that dough or that lump would be sanctified and given, and it was a picture that the rest of it was also sanctified. You would bring a part of your harvest, you would wave it before the Lord. That was sanctified, but it was also a picture that the rest of the harvest that was coming was sanctified, these connected things to him. How, however that works out, he's going to build onto that, the rest here, 17, what happens. I do think Christ in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told each one in his order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those that are Christ at his coming. Christ is our first fruits. He was the first human being to rise from the dead, never to return. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus raised some people from the dead, but they all died again. Jesus was raised from the dead, given his resurrected body. He's never going back. And he is the first fruits. He was the first resurrected human being to step back into God's presence like a wave sheaf. This is the beginning of the harvest, and there's a whole lot more to come. Just like this. And the, the work of God is going to be completed in that same way. Christ completed being the example of what else is to come. He says here, 17, with that same idea, he's going to build it. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. He's going to work humility into their mindset that they're just a, they've been brought into God's work. You're a part of it here. Uh, certainly the Jews would recognize the olive tree as a picture of their nation, Psalm 52, 8, Jeremiah eleven sixteen. But let's continue to read down a little bit, 19. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches... He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but on you, toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature and cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So Paul brings this kind of illustration to us. Um, remember, this is an illustration. There's, this is not a lesson on farming, per se. There's all types of arguments people go in here. Well, he flips it around. The one should be cultivated, this cut, and put into the wild one. Not like that. It should be flipped. And other people say, no, in Palestine, actually, you could do that with the trees. So there's a whole lot of, like, farming arguments here. I don't I think necessarily. Not that Paul, I don't believe Paul is wrong about this anyway. 
But that's not his whole point here. His whole point is the work that God is doing. And again, Israel's place in that. And has God's word failed in relation to them? Is he being unjust to them? What is his plan for them still? The Gentiles have been brought into God's plan in a unique way. They are being worked into that plan. They have been gifted a place into it. They've been grafted in like a branch, he says. His warning is to them, don't have pride or say, hey, look, we're in here now. This is all about us. He says, no, people were removed so that you could be brought in. You do not support the root. The root supports you. God started this work all the way back with Abraham as he's already established this superstructure of what God has been doing through the through the ages you have been brought in and been made a part of it. Those who've been put out of it have been put out because of unbelief. You've entered into this place where God's life is flowing. The Jews and Gentiles are brought into it together for mutual benefit, as you would do cutting off that branch, adding it to the tree. It would add mutual benefit to each other. And what he's saying here is, this is what God has done. The Jews and the Gentiles both brought into God's plan. They're both benefiting from it. And there's a warning to those who would want to exclude the other, which is pretty serious. God's goodness is connected with faith. God's severity there is connected with unbelief. And he simply says to them, don't think that you're somehow better than the Jews who were put out simply because they were put out. You didn't get stuck in because you're a Gentile. They were put out because of unbelief. You were put in because of faith. Guess what? If you have unbelief, you can get put out too. And the people who are unbelieving can put faith in them and they can get grafted back in. So uh, one author I was reading said, if you're sailing through a bunch of shipwrecks, you should look well to your own tackling. And like it, it is a warning to us personally, certainly, I think. It's easy to be connected to a religious superstructure and think you're a part of it just because you sit there, right? Just because we sit in a church doesn't mean that we're saved because we were born a Christian culturally. doesn't mean that we actually have spiritual life. Do we have true faith in him? Second Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourselves. He's writing to a church. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Faith, Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So you should know whether you actually have spiritual life in you. What does it mean to be a Christian? Paul says it. You should know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not just to believe something, but to have the life of Christ in you through faith. Uh, one author wrote a book, and he called it The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That's what it is. Do we have that? These believers have been grafted into God's purposes to have his life in their soul. And they had that through faith, not because they were better than the Jews, but because those who were put out were put out because of unbelief. There's a warning here. Certainly, I think there's a warning against anti-Semitism in general. Uh, the Jews' importance, again, didn't keep them in God's plan, but it also didn't push them out 
per se, because the Gentiles were being brought in. God could easily graft them back in. He, he has designed his plan, his life, to come through this people to the world. Galatians 3.14, again, Paul would say that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I think that verse just sums up what his whole illustration is saying. The promise of Abraham comes to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. We receive that promise of the Spirit through faith. That life gets imparted to us through faith. We're grafted into what God wants to do. They were removed because of unbelief. We enter because of faith. We should have humility and realize it's God's grace that has us there. Certainly this church was a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. Um, I think maybe there could have been, this is still speculation, but there's a point particularly in Rome's history where the Jews were kicked out. Seems like those Gentile Christians that were there were allowed to stay. Those Jews were brought back in. It could have been a time period certainly where there's the church is still alive. That element was out. It gets brought back in. There's all these cultural kind of differences and battles. There were still segments of the church saying you had to be a Jew. There's still segments saying, no, we need to drop this whole thing. It was, it was always kind of a, a battle to figure it out. Everywhere Paul went, it was a battle. And so he knew that there was always these types of discussions. And he knew there would be a segment on the Gentile side that would be ready to just write off the Jewish people. And he's laying down a warning of humility and what the central issues are, which are not nationality, but faith and unbelief in the work of God. So he's establishing this for them again, although acknowledging God's plan for Israel is not finished. 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also now have been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. God is wrapping up his plan here. Again, the end, I think it's important to read down 32. The end of it all is to have mercy on all. The fullness of the Gentiles and the Jews come. And when the fullness of the Gentiles is done, then all Israel will be saved. And we see the fullness of the Jews come together. This kind of completion happens. So the mystery, Paul says again in 25, I don't want you to be I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery. What he's speaking of, he mentions again in 16, 25 through 27, is that the gospel age, the mystery was this gospel age of Jew and Gentile being saved and drawn in one body called the church. In the Old Testament, they didn't understand that. They didn't see that happening. This kind of 
time period where God was working in this particular way, this, this was something they weren't aware of. Israel is not going to have a full restoration until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. During the gospel period, Israel is not going to have the full revival that God has promised. In fact, it seems like they're going to have a pretty difficult road at it. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It is still going to happen. Campbell Morgan, I think, summed this up pretty well. I was looking for somebody who could put it succinctly, uh, and there wasn't many. But he did in his commentary. He says this, Thus, through this maintenance of a remnant, God keeps his covenant with the fathers through the period of national rejection. But at last, the nation as a whole will be restored. Unbelieving Israel has been rejected as a nation in order that the outside world they failed to bless may receive salvation. Through the accomplishment of that larger purpose, at last, blessing will return to Israel. The element of certainly the elect remnant is always there. God is going to keep a remnant of his people believing in him like Paul like there are Messianic Jews today, and he's going to keep that people group alive even though there's a segment that is hardened against him. He knew that was going to happen. And the people of Israel are going to reject him until somebody comes that they'll accept who's the Antichrist. And then they will realize somewhere along the line that they've been duped, and they're going to come into a time of pretty terrible persecution, the Bible tells us, until God like another Egypt in miraculous, crazy ways, saves his people and protects them until he comes again and shows up. And when that happens, when the deliverer will come out of Zion, as Paul quotes, what he's going to do is he's going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob was the supplanter name for Israel. It was better when they were called Israel, governed by God. Jacob reminded them of a particular type of character. And at that point, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. So that little phrase there is a part of certainly a lot of theological discussion. Some people feel like that Israel is just talking about the church. Uh, most of the people who believe that have a very hard time in verse 25 because the Israel that's blinded is the same Israel as in verse 26, which is a national Israel. It's not the church. So kind of the two views people have here is when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's either saying all elect Israel will be saved or all national Israel will be saved. Um, to say that all the elect Israel will be saved is simply saying that all of saved Israel will be saved in the end. That's kind of redundant. Uh, I don't think Paul is making that point, nor does it really help with our context. He's also saying it was a mystery, and it's not much of a mystery to say everyone who's saved will be saved. Uh, what Paul is saying is that at the end of this mysterious dispensation, that the Jews didn't see or expect, even though it was said in Scripture, God will fulfill all those Scriptures that are still in reference to national Israel so that the word of God is not broken. That's what Paul's saying. So there's going to come a point where Israel is saved. Whenever the Bible talks about the second coming, 
It talks about it in three categories. The three categories are very simple. It talks about it in reference to the people of Israel, which is the number one biggest category. It talks about it in reference to the church, the bride of Christ. And it talks about it in reference to the unbelieving nations of the world, which will be judged. So it talks about the second coming and it gives different slants in relation to those three people groups. Whenever it talks about the second coming in relation to the people of Israel, what he talks about is him coming, saving them, and then establishing a kingdom and giving them all the promises that he said would be theirs through the Old Testament. The scriptures speak of him coming from Zion, Philippians 3.20, Hebrews 12.22, Revelation 14.1, the heavenly one to the earthly one. And then the Jews are gathered from all over the world. They're saved miraculously. They're brought to him. And when they see him, they are saved. When you see a resurrected Jesus Christ coming in the, the clouds of glory with the angels in heaven and the ten thousands of his saints on white horses, you believe he is who he says he is. And of course, there's scriptures. Who, this, the, who is this one who's wounded in the house of his friends? Right? They, there's, there's certainly references all through it in scripture. And at that meeting, they will be saved and cleansed. You can read Isaiah 60, 21 through 22, Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37, Zechariah 13 and 14 there. The talk about this moment where Israel is going to be saved. The people of God are going to recognize him for who he is. And it's in that moment that Israel is both saved and restored. Some people just see them as being saved. They'll say this doesn't say anything about restoration. But the point is, he says, I will deliver them. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's, he's going to complete his covenant, everything that he has said to them. There's some pretty remarkable scriptures. Uh, I'll just read a couple to you that talk about this moment. It says Isaiah 56, 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. The Lord God gathering the people of Israel and others. Isaiah 66, 19 and 20 says, I will set a sign among them and those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pul, to Lud, to draw the bone, Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off who have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations on horses and in chariots and in litters on mules and camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. Ezekiel will talk about it and say, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you to your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols brought not just to live there, to be cleansed from idolatry, to be saved. And Jesus would say he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth 
in the farthest part of heaven. This is a bit of speculation. This is going to happen one way or another. I got to be clear. This is speculation how I think it will happen, right? So I'm just throwing this out there for you. But, you know, you picture coming back with Christ, if you've ever tried to do this before, on a white horse. Certainly the armies of the world are against him. The Bible tells us that he defeats them with a sword that comes out of his mouth, the brightness of his own glory. We don't, we don't have to do too much, it seems, in that scene. Jesus Christ steps down on earth. Certainly the Mount of Olives cracks, his river's rushing out. He's entering into Jerusalem. But then what do we do? What, what's the point for the rest of us? And what I think these scriptures tell us, and there's many others, I just read a couple is that we go out into the world then. And part of the job of some people is bringing all of God's people back to Jerusalem through litters or mules or chariots or horses. I might ride up somewhere and say, hop on the back. <laughs> We're headed back to Jerusalem. Or a resurrected you or me or our loved ones who are in heaven ride back into Philadelphia City Hall, Kensington, and get to announce King of Kings is on his throne. And his will is going to be done in Kensington as it is in heaven. That there's a moment where it gets announced. Where his people are brought back to him and the world gets to hear the king's here and he's going to reign. And the world's going to be like it's supposed to be. And he'll rule the nations with an iron scepter for a thousand years. And there'll be blessing that flows. His knowledge flooding the earth. So many other things in relation to that moment. But when he says that Israel will be saved... As it is written, Israel will be saved as it is written, and his covenant with them will be kept as it is written, restored as it is written. Paul is saying, listen, he's not done. He's not done with his people. Realize what he's doing. Verse 28, this is important for them because this was a reality. He says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Paul knew this. This was Paul's life before he was saved. These Jews who are hardened are going to be your enemies. But God is still selecting a remnant out of this people. Understand that. And he's going to be faithful to his purposes. And he says, even though that's true, concerning election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. What he started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to finish. Concerning election, they're beloved. There's some of them that are going to turn. He he was, you would have never thought it was me. I hated the gospel. But then he was saved. He knew it well. And he's telling them, this is your life. This is your reality. This is what you're going to see in these people. 4.29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What God gave, what God promised, what God did in calling his people. He's not changing those things. He hasn't changed any of his ideas. He's not 
deciding, nah, this didn't go exactly the way that I wanted. Let's switch things up here. He's God. He's not changing with the times because that's what people think. Now, he says, as he goes on, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, everybody, that he might have mercy on all. Here's the big plan. Some of these, again, New Testament Jews thought that the Gentiles need to be circumcised to become saved or Jews to be saved. There were Gentiles who thought, okay, the Jews crucified their Messiah. They're done. God is done with them. Let's forget the Old Testament plan. Just join the church. God isn't actually trying to get rid of anybody. They were both wrong. He's got a plan that involves both people. and He's going to be faithful to everything he said the whole time. You guys, you Gentiles, you were disobedient in the beginning, and God was gracious bringing you light through the Jewish people, and now the Jews are disobedient, and now you can be a blessing back to them. Everybody's been disobedient. There's no section of good kids in the family here. Nobody in the family of God has a particular section where they did it right and somebody else did it wrong. And he says, guess why? God has committed all of them to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. The only way any of us are going to come into any blessings that God has said is because he is merciful to us. That's what you're going to, it's not because you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's not because you were good at one point and they were bad at one point. It's because he is merciful. And this is how he has decided to do things. And it's what his plan was, and he knew it all along. So, what does Paul say to that? 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. What, what's left to say about any of this? Paul's like, none of us helped him with this idea. God wasn't sitting down with any of us saying, hey, what do you think about this idea here? This is what I'm thinking. Well, I don't really like that. Okay, okay, I'm just feeling out. Right? Let's take a vote on this and see what everybody thinks. See, this is not what was happening. God has chosen this through the whole time. God's wisdom, his knowledge, his judgments, and his ways, they are seen in this. His, his wisdom is him using the best means to come to the best possible end. And his wisdom and his knowledge and his judgments and his ways have all done that. And when we come to the end of it all, we're all going to look at it and say, no, you did it right. right? We, we have to acknowledge certainly that uh, our best shot is depending on the thing he's doing. Right? He, he has the wisdom and the knowledge and the judgments and the ways. We don't. If you were getting thrown out into the wilderness and you had to survive there for a few months on your own, roughing it, you would want, you know, Bear Grylls or somebody with you. If they're like, okay, here's your choice. You can have this survival specialist come with you or you could try to do it on your own. Most of us would gladly say, I won't make any decisions. I'll just do whatever they tell me to do. I give up my deciding rights. 
Want to know why? Because they have wisdom, knowledge, judgments, and ways in relation to this way of life. So I will forfeit my judgments and I'll roll with what they say. God's a God of the universe. In the end, if we had all his power, all his wisdom, and all his knowledge, we would do nothing different. And Paul is just saying, who, who can search these things even out fully? Paul's explained them in a way that's pretty remarkable. But even he's admitting, I can't fully search these things out. God is just sharing these things with us. It's remarkable that he even tells us. He didn't have to tell us this. It could be confusing at times, which is fine, but he, he didn't have to give us any of this. He's allowing us to be his friends. And he's telling us, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm doing in the world. Here's how the plan's working out. This is the day and age that you and I live in now. The day and age of the gospel, where it's going into all the world, to the Gentiles. He's not done with his people yet, but they've come to a place of hardness because of their rejection of him. But we should recognize there's still an element that's going to be saved, a remnant of grace, elect of God, that he's going to keep till the end because he's faithful and he's going to finish the whole thing then when he's done with what he's doing here in this times of the Gentiles. And he's bringing it all to that correct, to that correct end. 4.36, of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is the hand of God in human history, Paul's saying. And when we see it, this is the story that is to be told. There isn't another story that's going to be told. When the story is told, this is the story that will be told. All the other things that happen in the face of the earth, they're not actually that important. This is more important. And how we're connected to this is more important than anything else that's happening on the face of the earth. One simple thing I do for the kingdom of God is more important than, you know, anything you could think of. Than the Sphinx or the pyramids. It doesn't matter how long those things stay around for. Because they're going to be gone at some point, And whatever I do in relation to him is eternal. It's the only kingdom that's going to last. It's the only one that actually matters. Because everything's come from him, everything goes through him, and everything gets brought to him at the end. He's there for the whole process. He started it all. He doesn't leave us hanging in the middle of it. He is with us. He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. He's with us through it so that as he's present with us, everything about him is present with us, all his power, all his knowledge, all his wisdom, all his care, all his providence. And because of that, the end you never have to doubt about. He started it. He's with us through the process, which means he's got full power, full wisdom, full ability to get us to the ending that he wants. And I don't have to look around the world and start to get stressed. We do. We question his wisdom. We wonder if our knowledge is maybe a little better than his knowledge and how to make decisions. We'd look around the world and say, I don't know if that's the judgment that I would put there. Certainly the world looks and doesn't agree with God's judgments. 
He needs to update. Doesn't he know it's 2023? What is he talking about, creation, marriage? What is he talking about in terms of human life and existence? He hasn't changed, and he's not going to. And he's going to get us to that proper ending. And he's not stressed about any of it. And he is inviting through the Apostle Paul here, these believers and believers all through the ages, to see what he's doing in regards to the family of God. Whether it's Jews or Gentiles, are the things he said all through his word. And I would simply encourage you, at the end of it, all the glory is going to be to him. And we're just going to look at him and say, amen, so be it, should be. And I don't know about you, but I just want to be a part of the process. Right? He put me here. We're here in this day and age. Again, he created everything. He could have had us live in any other day and age. Could have made us any other people. Your race, your gender, your culture, what you look like, what your gifts are. He knows all those things. He has us who we are, where we are. And he's taking us to his proper end. And I get a segment of time to be here, to serve him. And then we step into eternity, where it's not going to be special to choose to serve him. Everybody's going to do it there. This is our chance to choose to be good stewards with what he's put in front of us. And I know I'm committed to something that's not going to fail. Because nothing he has said in his word will be broken come to naught. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for these things. Thank you that you would even want to share them with us, Lord. And I just pray that you would, again, minister your truth to our hearts. Certainly, Lord, there's all types of angles here. But in the end, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We recognize that you are the creator, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And certainly, Lord, we just want to be found walking with you, sons and daughters that are pleasing to you. And we thank you that, Lord, you are good to us. You want to share your goodness and your riches with us and with the world, Lord, around us. So we acknowledge you in this place, Lord. We want to worship you in this place. Lord, there's a lot of places around the world where people don't know you, don't know the truths, any of them that we talked about tonight. But we do, and we want to praise you accordingly. In these things in Jesus' name, amen.